0: Firstly, thank you to Terry for the pastoral prayer. I thought you were going to do it in French, Terry. That's what you said, isn't it? Thank you for Paul on the reflection of communion, and thank you for Brahman for that reading. We started a new series uh, last week on the Book of Romans, and and Gordon uh, shared with us the profound influence that it had had on the Christian church and on Christian theology through the work of reformers like Augustine and Luther. But more than a historical significance, this book of Romans is helpful to us as we begin to understand what salvation and what redemption means. And part of what I'm going to talk about today um, is, is about that. Because before we can understand salvation and redemption, we have to understand what we were saved from. What was saved from? What is the problem that we were saved from? So this morning I'll be talking about human sin and God's wrath. Nothing like an encouraging message to start the day. I think we should start in prayer. And Lord, we come to you with the posture of a student, Lord. Open hearts, open minds, open hands, O Lord. Give us the eyes to see, give us the ears to hear, the truth that is in your word this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. I have a question to start off with. Who can tell me what sort of tree that is? Are there any arborists or nature experts in our congregation that can tell me what sort of tree that is? Sorry? A dead tree. Yes, you're all completely right. This is a carry tree, which is dying of carry dieback. And all those cleaning shoe stations before you enter the forests of New Zealand is totally worth it, or else we'll see more sites like this in our magnificent New Zealand forests. Because once a tree gets infected with carry dieback, the tree will die. Ca- carry dieback is a disease that, causes, that is found in the soil, and it infects the, the roots and the uh, uh, tissues that carries the nutrients in water up to the tree. And so it's effectively starving the tree to death. Why am I telling you this? Because what is happening to our carry trees in New Zealand is the same thing that is happening to our world. When we step into a text today, we find that Paul is talking about the human race, like a tree, so diseased, that it'll come down crashing at any moment. Like Carrie Diaback, where the roots and the tissues of the trees have been infected with a fungus, the hearts and the minds of mankind has been forever infected by this disease called sin. I don't think it would take too much to convince you that the human race is diseased and damaged. All I need to say is abortion, corporate greed, ethnic cleansing, euthanasia, hatred. Mass shooting, murder, oppression, pornography, poverty, racism, sex trafficking, slavery, violence. And I'm sure you can add more words to that list. So it is interesting and not surprising that Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, does not start with the positive aspects of the gospel. He doesn't say, for God so loved the world. He does not say that God loves you, can offer you abundant life of joy, peace, and love. No, this is how he starts off. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godliness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. So Paul starts off by saying that the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all the godliness and wickedness of people. And note this, the word revealed is in the present continuous tense, which means it has been revealed now, it has been seen now, it has been experienced now. That is now, right now, right here. The wrath of God has been revealed right now. But let's be honest. The doctrine of the wrath of God is a difficult doctrine to talk about these days. It sounds bigoted. It sounds too extreme. It sounds too intolerant in our culture today. So the very idea of judgment and hell for many people is just so out of this world. It's so foreign, it's so outdated. But let me just say three things about the wrath of God. Firstly, God's wrath is not like man's anger. Because verse 18 tells us where its source is. Its source is divine. It's revealed from heaven. It is of God. So God's wrath is quite different from man's wrath. We may fly off the handle at different things, sometimes over some very minor things, because of our mood, our situation, or our state of emotions at that time. I'm sure none of this happens in your family, so you know, it's just theory <laughs> for you guys. I might come home from work, and i have perhaps feeling a little prickly because of something that happened at work, and anything that Brenda might say to me might trigger off for me to act ungraciously to her, maybe give her the sullen treatment or completely ignore her. But God's wrath is not like that. He does not blow his top. He does not lose control. He does not have a celestial bad temper. He's not capricious. He's not irrational. He's not impulsive. He's not mean. He's not vindictive. He's not spiteful. In fact, it is the exact opposite because it means to the second point, God's wrath is just, is totally just. God's wrath is totally right because his wrath is against all ungodliness and wickedness. That is, it is a righteous anger against solely, against all that is evil. J.R. Packer in his classic book, Knowing God, asks this question. He says, Would a God who did not react adversely to evil in this world be morally perfect? Surely not. But it is precisely this adverse reaction to evil which is a necessary part of moral perfection that the Bible has in view when it speaks of God's wrath. J.R. Packer, talking about the same topic, says this, God must act justly and judge sin, otherwise God would not be God or God would not be holy. The reason that God's wrath is against all ungodliness and wickedness is that it is eating the insides of the human race which God loves with His whole being. You see, the wrath of God is a reminder of the holiness of God and a measure of God's absolute and immense hatred of sin and His love for creation and His love for us. The third thing I just want to say about God's wrath is that God's wrath is merciful. Entry Wright in his book, Simply Good News, says this. He says, The wrath of God is simply the shadow side of the love of God. Interesting statement. What did Entry Wright mean? How can the wrath and anger display love? You see, God not only punishes and judges sin, but He took that very punishment and the very judgment which He imposed on mankind and He put it on His Son at the cross. We should never forget that our sin, which God absolutely hates, resulted in the suffering and the agony of our Saviour when God's full wrath was poured against His Son at Calvary. So to think lightly of sin is to take Christ's suffering lightly. So the doctrine of God's wrath and judgment actually also reveals God's grace and love for us. But why is God's wrath being revealed? This passage gives us two reasons. In verse 18 it says that man is suppressing the truth. We push down the truth, we cover the truth, we obstruct the truth, we conceal the truth. I'll give you a silly illustration. One Sunday I was late for church. It's not good for an elder to be late for church. So I came out of my driveway, went up Merandellas Drive, turned right into Gill's Road. And at the back of my mind, I kind of knew that there was a stop sign at the top of Gill's Road turning into Hutchinson Road. But I suppressed that truth, because when I looked down Hutchinson Road, I could see no cars coming. So I just, I didn't do the three second stop sign bit. I just kept going right round into the arms of the waiting traffic cops (laughs) who was observing everything that I was doing. Pulling me to one side, I wound down my window, and he said, didn't you see the stop sign there? And I said, what stop sign? (laughs) Suppressing the truth. And then I said, has it always been there? (laughs) Even more so, suppressing the truth. And then he asked me this question, why were you speeding? And I sheepishly mumbled under my breath something about being late for church. (laughs) That interview was more painful than the $160 I had to pay for speeding. Why do we suppress the truth? Because if we admit that there is a God and He made us, we owe Him everything. Then we no longer have control of our lives, and we absolutely hate that. The second reason why God's wrath is being revealed is that we have made an exchange. We have exchanged God for counterfeit God. In verse 23 it says this, we have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. And in verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than Creator. An exchange has happened. We mankind have exchanged the glory of the one true God for counterfeit versions of God. Now, this might be an old-school idolatry, which you see in the homes and the temples of Asia, um, where there's um, idols and there's um, altars, and they might uh, offer incense, uh, and they might pray to them. But we don't have that in our New Zealand 21st century. What we have is 21st-century idols of success and achievement, our careers, our education, our jobs, our health, our family, our status, in fact, anything can be idols. How do you know that it's an idol? Tim Keller suggests that we ask this question. If you lost it, would life be not worth living? And if you have exchanged the truth about God for one of these counterfeits, you will lose the sense of the fundamental difference between creator and creature. But what truth of God has been suppressed? Well, Paul uses a paradox here. He says the invisible God has been made visible in his creation. As we can see, God's power and God's divinity in the creator realm. God's fingerprints are all over his handiwork in nature. The psalmist in Psalm verse 19 says this. says, the heavens are telling the glory of God, and the expanse is declaring the work of his hands. People who have never heard the gospel, who have never seen a Bible, who have never received a gospel track, who have never met a missionary, can look at creation around them and conclude that God exists. Paul's point is this that the evidence is so clear, so plain, so undeniable, so obvious, that Paul says in verse 20, so that men are without excuse. So when you hear that often posed question, what about those who have never heard? We should know that this question starts on the wrong premise. There's no such thing as an innocent pagan or an innocent tribe in the deepest, darkest Africa or in the Amazon jungle or in New Zealand, anywhere in the world. John Calvin said this, there is no nation so barbarous, no people so savage that they have not a deep-seated conviction that there is a God. No one can use the excuse at the judgment seat of God saying, God, I didn't know you existed. If I knew you existed, I would have worshipped you and you alone. Paul says they are without excuse. The premise here is that the whole world has a certain knowledge of God, and theologians call this natural revelation. revelation. Now, there's a big difference between knowing God through nature and worshipping God and coming to Him in repentance and calling Him Lord. So this does not mean that men knew God in a saving way, but rather that they had a general sense of God's existence, which is the starting point on the journey to knowing God. So what was God's response to their suppression of the truth in exchanging God for idols? Well, actually, God didn't do anything. All He did was that He gave them over to their own choices, to the consequences that would follow. And each time that Paul mentions their wickedness, this is what he says that God did about it. He says that God gave them over. Probably one of the scariest phrases in the Bible. Three times, Paul says, uses his phrase, when people reject God, what does God do? He takes his hands off. All the restraints are lifted and releases them over to their chosen path and to the consequences of their own choice. God's anger is manifested in giving us over to what we wanted to do. So the intensification of the evil we see in this world, the intensification of the permissiveness that we see in this world, is the judgment that God has given them over to. He doesn't cause it. He simply lets them go to follow sin's ugly course until that final day of judgment. Verse 24. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Verse 26. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Verse 28. So God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. You see, when you suppress the truth about God, You distort God's original design for human relationships. So Paul seems to indicate there is a causal relationship here between idolatry and immorality. And so it's not surprising that when we look at the biblical narrative, there is usually uh, idolatry and immorality appears together in a lot of of the narratives that we read in the Old and the New Testament. And so this passage mentions unnatural relations and homosexual sins among all the other sins. But notice this. Homosexual sin is not worse than any other sins. Heterosexual sexual sins is just as much a sin as homosexual sins. It is really no different from the list of the 21 non-sexual sins in verses 29 to 31 which includes wickedness, evil, greed, depravity, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slander, insolence, arrogance, boastfulness, and those who disobey the parents. All sin is... That's in, check it out, it's there. I was surprised as well, I must, I must admit. But it's there. All sin is offensive to God but perhaps the thing to notice in this list is that it is predominantly about human relationships. Paul is making the point that when our relationship with our Creator God is affected, then inevitably our relationship with each other is also affected. Now, after looking at this list of sins at the end of chapter 1, there is a temptation to think that the catalogue of sins does not apply to us. It is easy after reading the list of 21 vices and acts of unrighteousness at the end of chapter 1 to think, phew, that's not me. I'm better than that. I'm not perfect, but I'm better than them. Romans chapter 2, verse 1, You therefore have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the very same things. Because Paul here is pointing out that the sense of assuredness was false. He says that you are falling into that comparison trap. You are basing your righteousness on comparison with others rather than on God's righteousness. Here in this uh, verse in, in chapter two, Paul is addressing an imaginary person who feels that the list—he feels that the list of sins does not apply to them, that they are okay with God, that they are off the hook. And more likely, they're not. Paul is talking about his countrymen, the Jews, who thought that they were special because they were circumcised, that they ate the right foods, that they complied with the. Uh, cleanliness rules and they observed the Sabbath that they were off the hook and today in the same way we have people here who appeal to their religious upbringing their religious traditions their religious heritage we have people here who have a long association with the church perhaps even a familiarity with the Bible but Paul is saying this he says unless you are in Christ you are under judgment and that judgment is coming People here make the mistake that just because they do not see the evil being taken care of by God in this world, that the judgment is never coming. But Paul responds to this in chapter 2 of verse 4 and 5 is this He says, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, You are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Paul says here that you have confused God's patience with God's indifference. God's judgment is coming. God has a purpose with his patience and his delay. In fact, it is his kindness to give you time to repent. God is allowing mankind to continue in their sin and to experience God's wrath with the hope and the intention that some may turn to him to ask for his forgiveness while there is still time. This is an act of kindness and an act of patience. But if you don't repent day after day, month after month, year after year, then you are storing up God's wrath against yourself for the day of judgment. Let me just say three things in reflection on the wrath of God. Firstly, God's wrath is directed against those who suppress the truth of the existence of God and those who exchange worship for the one true God for counterfeit gods. Secondly, God's wrath is not like a human fly-off-the-handle type of anger. It is divine, it is just, and it is loving. The third thing, God's wrath has been and is being released right here, right now, by God taking his hands off the restraints and letting humanity pile headlong to the consequences of sin. And what we see now is just a prelude to the day of judgment, which is coming when, according to Romans 2, verse 5, his righteous judgment will be revealed. So this was Paul's analysis of the condition of his world in the first century. We also see this very same condition in our modern 21st century world, so really not much has changed. And it's obvious that there can only be one solution, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes, Romans chapter 1, verse 16. So what is our response to this? Let me quote to you again, Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you show contempt? for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. Our proper and right response to this diagnosis of our lives and the diagnosis of this world, according to Paul, is one thing, repentance. Repentance is not just saying sorry. Repentance is a radical change in your life and placing Jesus in his rightful place in your life as Lord. Where are you this morning? You may you may have been suppressing the truth about God. You may have changed the glory of the immortal God for one of these counterfeit gods. But you know what? It's never too late. Because God's patience is God's kindness to lead you to repentance. It's never too late. And if you are in that, if you're in that situation, and if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, then all you need really is the ABC of salvation. A, admit that what you, that you have lived a life without God, and you need His forgiveness. B, you need to believe. Believe that Jesus died for your sins and that he rose again and that he has fully paid for your sins. See, confess, commit, and choose God to be the Lord of your life and allow God to be in charge of your life. Shall we pray? Lord, this passage has reminded us or given us eyes to see the world as it is, as you see it, Lord. This passage has shown us, Lord, our problem, our sinfulness, our lostness without you. And today, Lord, we want to respond, not as truth suppressors, but as bearers of truth, of the existence of God in our life. We want to commit ourselves to you afresh, Lord. We thank you for the provision of the solution in your son Jesus through the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.